Tantamount Season 1 is a true crime podcast on the Washington, D.C. serial killer, the Freeway Phantom. Due to the graphic nature, it is not intended for those under the age of 18. Hello, this is Blaine Pardo. And this is Victoria Hester. Welcome to Episode 3 of Tantamount Season 1, Catch Me If You Can. To recap where we are, a serial killer is striking at the African-American community in Washington, D.C. in 1971. He has killed four young girls so far that we know of. As far as the public knows, it may be as many as five if you include Angela Barnes. There's a lot of outrage, anger, and frustration, justifiably so. Agreed. It is around this time that the murder of Nina Moesha Yates that we start to see references in the print media of the name Freeway Phantom. It's hard to pin down exactly who coined the phrase, but one investigator on the case, James Trainum, told us that he believed it was local D.C. reporter Pat Collins who coined the phrase Freeway Phantom. So, the media was responsible for creating the moniker Freeway Phantom. Once you put a name on a serial killer, it picks up significantly more attention with the media. It becomes a sort of marketable package, a brand. Graphics are drawn up, and the faceless killer has something to identify with. The media in 1971 was newspapers, radio, and TV. We didn't have the internet or 24-hour news channels. People diligently read the paper every day because it was how they got their news. And the Freeway Phantom, once he got his name, made these murders page one material. More importantly, the killer was following the media, as so many serial killers do. Six weeks had passed since the death of Nina Moesha Yates. Six weeks when the Phantom had to stalk the next perfect victim. On November 15th, 1971, he found his target. 18-year-old Brenda Denise Woodard. Brenda was a passionate young girl. She lived across the courtyard from her parents because she clashed with them. She had moved there with a girlfriend weeks prior to her murder. The arguments were typical teenage issues centered around who she could and should date. Brenda had a crush on a young man named Walter Clark. She was actually admitted to the hospital for hysterical behavior at one point, so deep in her obsession with Walter. Doctors labeled her as emotionally immature. The fact that she had to go to the hospital over the anxiety her boyfriend raised says a lot on its own. Her issues spilled over at school. In May of 1971, she had gotten in trouble at school, throwing a beer can at her boyfriend. She transferred to another school as a result of the incident. She had a job at the Parks and Recreation Department and was taking night classes to get caught up with her studies at the time of her disappearance. I think it's interesting that Brenda was not naive about the freeway phantom. On the day that Nino Yates disappeared, she called her mother at work and cautioned her to take extra care of her little sisters. She wasn't the kind of person that got into a stranger's car, according to both her father and a close friend. The night of her disappearance, after night classes, she and a friend, Sherman Mitchell, went to Ben's Chili Bowl, still a very popular restaurant in D.C., 
This was around 9.45 p.m. She boarded a DC transit bus at around 10.25 p.m. She transferred buses at 8 and H streets. Typically, she stopped by her parents' apartment on her way home, but she never came by that night. The next morning, Brenda's mother was waiting for a bus for a doctor's appointment, still worried that her daughter had not come home. The bus was delayed because a body had been found on Route 202. When she walked down the hill to catch another bus, she saw police vehicles and a wig in the median of the road. She told her companion, who was with her at the time, it looks like the wig my daughter has. Brenda had been discovered by Cheverly, Maryland police officer David Norman. He had been on patrol and spotted a body with a raised arm jutting in the air in a rough grassy area in the service roadway between the Baltimore-Washington Parkway and Route 202 Landover exit ramp. Her coat had been casually thrown over the body. Uh, I just left the duty officer at the hospital and I was driving down heading toward Maryland Route 202 Landover Road. Well, to get there, I had to use the ramp leaving the hospital, which also intersected with a ramp leaving the B&W Parkway, Baltimore-Washington Parkway, and the body was on the right side, not on the parkway uh, egress, but in the town of Cheverly. So I, I spot the body. And I didn't know what it was, so I went down to the, I just knew it was something black. I went down to the intersection, made a U-turn, and came back up and pulled into the little section uh, where the uh, roads intersected there, going on to the parkway or down to 202. When I pulled my cruiser into the space provided for coming off of the parkway or going back onto the parkway or going down the Route 202. It's a little section of open roadway. Mm -hmm. And I shined my spotlight on the body. Well, the, the killer had placed her coat over top of her. It was a shiny black coat. And um, it covered her body except for her head and one arm. Now, the arm was, her left arm was sticking up. body was found was in Cheverly, but it was on the border with National Park Land, making it a park police and eventually the FBI's jurisdiction. Adding to the jurisdictional questions, Cheverly police generally didn't investigate murders. They pulled in the Prince George's County Police. Add in the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police, and you had five departments with this case in their hands. I've seen the crime scene photos of Brenda Woodard, and they tear at your heart. I know a lot of true crime fans would like to see those images, and while we have them, we generally don't post them and make them available. Her images really do get to you it, because it appears she's looking right at the camera, staring right at you, the viewer. It, it is, well, haunting. 
There was a discrepancy as to which bus stop Brenda got off at. This is highlighted best by a conversation we had with Romaine Jenkins, who was one of the detectives who would later work this case. Brenda Woodard and I grew up pretty much in the same neighborhood. I had just moved from that neighborhood, I think about a month um, before she was killed. I, I know no other neighborhood like I know that one. And Nothing goes on in that neighborhood that somebody didn't see. I'm, I'm telling you, I know it. And that's why she felt at ease walking home from school. You know, usually she got a ride, but Sherman Mitchell, I think that was his name, his car broke down. So that's when, you know, they caught the bus from night school that particular night. But she, there was no reason for her really to fear in. The bus driver said she got off at 19th and Benning. No, she didn't. She, if she got off the bus and she was going home, she got off at 21st. That's, that would, that would lead her closer to her house. She wouldn't have gotten off at 19th Street, you know. Huh. They questioned the bus driver quite a bit. I know they did, but he made a mistake. If she got off at 19th Street, then she wasn't going home because that would, that would cause her to have to walk too far to get home. Hmm. 21st Street. Go straight up 21st Street and, and 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 until she hit Merlin Avenue. And and it's it's a mix. The neighborhood is mixed. They're apartment buildings and there's, you know, single family homes. And there's always somebody there to see what's going on, I'm telling you. That's the kind oh, yeah. of neighborhood it was. And I had younger cousins and I know even some police officers who grew up in the same almost side by side with uh, to the buildings that, that she lived in. You know, everybody knew everybody. Brenda was dressed in a black turtleneck, a blue and white checkered miniskirt, black boots, and a burgundy three-quarter length coat. Her sweater was turned inside out. Her body was face perpendicular to the road. Her wig was found in the median just 30 yards away. It seems to indicate that the phantom deposited her body, then spotted the wig in his vehicle, and threw it out to remove any incriminating evidence. Brenda had been strangled, but her cause of death was a stab wound to her right chest. She had defense wounds on her hands and had been sexually assaulted. Green rayon fibers were recovered from her socks and underwear. Negroid head hairs were found on her coat, boot, shirt, and bra. Two Caucasian head hairs were also recovered, although it's speculation that they came from the detectives on the scene who recovered her manes with a blanket. Her school books were missing. This could be important since the freeway phantom may have kept them as some sort of souvenir from the crime. There was a note found in her coat pocket. It was written in her own handwriting. It read, This is tantamount to my insensitivity to people, especially women. I will admit the others when you catch me, if you can. Freeway Phantom. We're going to dedicate an entire episode to this note, because while it is only six lines and 24 words long, it is the first and only time that the killer spoke to the investigators. At the same time, the authorities did not release the content of the note found on her body. This was kept secret until 2006. The press, even some psychiatrists, really focused on the name Denise at this stage. It appeared with eerie frequency. Carol Denise Spinks, Darlenia Denise Johnson, 
Brenda Denise Woodard. Radio stations and newspapers speculated that the Freeway Phantom was targeting girls with this name. Today, that could be possible, thanks to the internet. But in 1971, there was no good way to determine who actually had that name. Still, police went down that rabbit hole because it was so obvious. What I found interesting was that when we talked to officers from that era, they pointed out that it was a very popular name. With the random nature of these crimes, it's easy to see why authorities began to warn girls with the name to be careful. Unfortunately, it only added to the tensions in the city. Brenda's death is significant in several ways beyond the creepy note that was left on her body. First, the phantom didn't strangle her to death. He stabbed her multiple times. She fought him, as evidenced by her defensive wounds. He lost control of her, and that shook him. Control of a frightened 10-year-old is different than a feisty 18-year-old. It would be another 10 months before the freeway phantom struck again. The public was lulled into complacency when the killer did not strike again. 17-year-old Diane Williams was an 11th grader at Ballou High School in the District of Columbia on September 5th of 1972. She had wanted to go to a nearby recreation center. Her curfew time was 10.30 p.m. Her father worked at Lorton Prison in Virginia as a prison guard. Diane didn't make her curfew that night. We do know that she spent time with her boyfriend that evening. She was a stunning figure. She looked just like a model. She had been at the rec center and boarded a bus at Martin Luther King Avenue near Howard Street Northeast. The bus driver told authorities that she had gotten off the bus at 19th and Benning Road. Detective Romaine Jenkins, who would later work the Freeway Phantom case, disagreed. Somewhere between the bus stop and her apartment, just a few short blocks, Diane encountered the Freeway Phantom. Maryland State Police received a call of a body on I-295 from a tractor-trailer driver. Her clothing was wet, an indication she had been out there most of the night. Her father had driven past her body on the way home, almost as if she had been left there for him to see. You know, we have the same sort of circumstance with Brenda Woodard and her mother. Both of these victims were left where their parents might see them. It does make you wonder if the killer knew them, that this was an act that was somehow deliberate. Or was it pure circumstance? Diane was found with her shoe, but no shoelaces. She had been strangled with fingernail marks on her neck. Her left elbow was bruised, and she had a contusion to her rib cage. She had been dead somewhere between 9 and 20 hours. Brown, Caucasian, and Negroid hairs were recovered from her body. Like Brenda, officers had thrown a blanket over her as well. Green rayon fibers were found inside of her bra. Semen was recovered in her panties. It would not be until this century that it was tested. While investigators were hopeful it would lead them to the freeway phantom, we were told by an anonymous police source that the semen was from her boyfriend at the time. While he had denied that the two of them had had intercourse, the DNA allegedly, and I stress that allegedly, pointed to him, not to the phantom. Most lists of the freeway phantom victims end here, with Diane Williams. We executed a Freedom of Information Act request 
with all of the police agencies and were shut down through the official channels, except for one, the FBI. They responded to us. Which is kind of surprising and remarkable. Almost always, the FBI shuts Victoria and I down. We saw that with the Colonial Parkway Murders book that we worked on. They were friendly with us, always professional, but never really sharing anything of use. This time, they shared the VICAP reports, and they had another victim on their list, Tierra Ann Bryant. And in our investigation, her name comes up in several places as a victim of the Freeway Phantom, although this has never been made public until the release of our book. Victoria, why don't you tell our listeners what you've learned about Tierra Ann Bryant? On Sunday, November 16, 1972, 18-year-old Tierra Ann Bryant was taken to Leland Memorial Hospital by her mother for a minor medical problem. Her mother left her there at 3 p.m., telling her to get a ride home and giving her a bus fare. She lived just over the border in Maryland. Tierra was a young mother and a highly motivated to get home. She stopped at Dunkin' Donuts after leaving the hospital around 5.30 p.m. She walked along Rhode Island Avenue right past the Hyattsville police station, so she should have felt safe. Between 6 and 6.30 p.m., a neighbor saw her walking near the SunTrust Bank, obviously opting to walk rather than take the bus. It was a decision that would cost her her life. At 3.55 a.m., her mother contacted the police and reported her missing. The next day, 19-year-old Raymond Alston spotted her body in the Anacostia River at the Bladensburg Road Bridge about two miles from the hospital. One of her shoes was discovered 200 yards further upriver where she had apparently been thrown over into the river. Sadly, this location is almost in sight of her own home. The usual telltale fiber evidence was not found as in the other Freeway Phantom victims. The teddy that she was wearing was torn open and one of our sources said that she had shown signs of sexual assault and was also strangled. It's easy to see why Prince George's County Police and the Washington MPD don't link this to the Freeway Phantom. There's no physical evidence like we've seen before. There's no indication that she was taken to the Phantom's domain where she was killed. We haven't fully explored it yet, but the Phantom bathed his victims, supposedly to remove evidence. In Tierra's case, she was thrown into the river, presumably for the same reason. It's possible that he changed his M.O. when he came to Tierra, assaulting, killing, and depositing her in the same locale. Some investigators believe she is linked to the Freeway Phantom, and clearly the FBI does. She doesn't just show up in the VICAP report. She also shows up in the FBI's confidential profile of the victim. We were able to get our hands on a copy of that report, and we'll go over it in some detail in another episode. If you are a fan of the Mindhunter series on Netflix, you won't want to miss our discussion on the mind of this killer. A serial killer will change his MO or modus operandi the way he executes his crimes. Many serial killers adapt and change because of their experience or law enforcement or the situation. MOs evolve as a killer gains experience. We saw that on the Colonial Parkway murders when we wrote about those crimes. What doesn't change is the signature of the killer, the compulsion that is personal to them. With the Phantom, it is the strangulation and the use of water to wash away any evidence, 
or perhaps wash away his own guilt. The signature always remains the same. It's how the murderer sates himself. That signature is what is present with Tira Bryant. That's a good point, Victoria, which is probably why the behavior profiling experts at the FBI consider her part of this string of murders. Of course, it is possible that she is not a victim of the Freeway Phantom, but I'm willing to go there. Consider this. Tierra was 17 years old. She had no enemies. She was a young mother struggling with the responsibilities life had heaped on her. She was between a police station and her home when she was confronted and eventually killed in broad daylight, like the other Freeway Phantom victims. If she is not a victim of the Freeway Phantom, the question begs to be asked, who did kill Tierra Ann Bryant and why? You know, in doing these podcasts and the book, I think that listeners get the vibe that we are not moved about these deaths that we are somehow detached about the victims and the murders themselves. Well, that's not true. These crimes deeply bother us. Agreed. A lot of it is we have two years digging into these cases. When you go over the information so many times, you start to remove yourself out of the equation. Your emotions and feelings get set aside. That's the only way that you don't slant your writing to what you actually feel, but actually stick to the facts. I don't want people to think of us as cold-hearted. Believe me, I have had my share of sleepless nights because of the Freeway Phantom. Even in our earlier projects, we had to step outside the crime and focus on the information. For us, we want you to form your own opinions. We are providing you, the listener, with the data that lets you arrive at your own conclusions. Trust me, though, we are moved. It is the kind of stuff that keeps you awake at night, gnaws at you at the quiet times when you're alone. You get immersed in cold cases like these, and there isn't an easy way to shut it off inside your head. There have been more than one occasion that I have broken down alone after an interview. You don't want to do it during, but after the emotions get on top of you. I just felt that we had to say something about that. Now back to the crimes. For Washington and Maryland authorities, they are now counting six, possibly seven victims of the Freeway Phantom. They do not include Tierra Ann Bryant, but are including Angela Barnes. In our next episode, we'll talk about the murder of Angela Barnes and much more. In the next episode of Tantamount, the Freeway Phantom's murder spree mysteriously ends, leaving investigators high and dry in terms of clues and leads. One young woman associated with the crimes has her case solved, but the Phantom remains elusive despite a massive body of physical evidence. A passing comment in court leads to one of the largest multi-jurisdictional manhunts in Washington, D.C. history. Join us for Episode 4 the investigation, and the evidence.
Tantamount is based on the book by the same name written by Blaine Pardo and Victoria Hester. It is available from Wild Blue Press on Amazon.com. You can go to the author's blog at blainepardo.wordpress.com for additional information on these episodes. The Freeway Phantom is an unsolved case. All suspects named in this podcast are presumed innocent until proven guilty. If you have information that could help authorities, please call the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department at 202-727-9099 or via email at unsolved.murder at dc.gov. Tentamount is written and produced by Blaine Pardo and Victoria Hester. Our music was written and performed by Ed Miller. Production assistance provided by Cindy Pardo.